Would you open your Bibles to the book of Mark chapter 2? As you're going there, this is one of my favorite sections of Scripture because it's just so fascinating to me that Jesus, keeping in mind, we're going to read about in a minute some Pharisees who were really ticked because Jesus was having lunch with these publicans and these sinners and not with them, right? And it's fascinating because I'm looking at it going, well, I kind of get it. They were working really hard and then you show up and then you're going to go over there, right? It actually reminded me um, a a while, maybe a couple years ago, I was in uh, North Africa with Mark and Dana, and we found ourselves in the home of this wonderful Muslim family, and they were had prepared food all day long, and, and we were talking about the goodness of God and the grace of God, and, and it made one of the ladies kind of angry because she had worked so hard that grace made her angry. And you know what it meant? It meant she understood She was mad because she understood it. If grace doesn't make you mad at some point, you don't fully understand it. Like if your grace isn't amazing, then it's not right. So they were getting it. They're like, wait, I've worked so hard. I'm counting my rice and trying to make sure I'm doing it right. And and then this guy's just gonna come and wash all my sins away. It It really punched them, right? And that's what's happening with these Pharisees. Now, I want to say this, that for the most part over the years, I've seen the scripture and thought, oh, this is, uh, now this means I should go have dinner with a lot of sinners. Um, R.C. Sproul uh, was the quote that I shared this week. We couldn't figure out who it was. Uh, said, if that is the main lesson, the only lesson you take away from this passage, then you don't know your place in the story. Now, I'll share why in a minute, but I do want to share that there is a picture of what gospel what hospitality means. Uh, apologetics is faith on defense. Hospitality is faith on offense. Um, if you have not read this book, um, I encourage you to throw away all your other books and read just this book, okay? Once you get done with the Maria Kondo thing with all your books, um, <laughs> get this one. Uh, this woman, Rosaria Butterfield, which doesn't it sound like a syrup? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> The Rosaria Butterfield for your log cabin, sir. Anyway, um, was a uh, tenured professor at a liberal university, was uh, living in an open relationship with, uh, with another woman, was living with her. She was getting ready to write her tenure paper, and her basic premise was that uh, to prove that all fundamentalist Jesus people are jerks and, it was a, and against stupidity. Those were her two goals, no stupidity. And, and in the process of that, some neighbors of her invited her over for dinner. And she said that even on that first meeting that they didn't invite me to church and they didn't preach the gospel and I loved it uh, because I knew that I wasn't a project for them. And there was this span of time over years, not days, and she came to Christ because she said, I didn't come because I wanted to leave all this behind. I came because I realized that Jesus is who he said he was. And she's married now to a pastor in the Northeast and she is, this book is just a beautiful example of what it is that in the days of of doing the big arena things and the altar calls, I don't know if those days are gone, but I do know that there's an entire population of people that will say they're rejecting faith because of an academic, but when you talk to them, it's because I was hurt, I was wounded, I was, so they're saying it's academic, but they're communicating with their lives that it was about the hurt and the kind, you know, that they weren't kind. You have a, Uh, gospel track called your dining room table. And I just want you to prayerfully consider that. Have you found Mark chapter two? Because if you haven't, totally your fault. I gave you plenty of time. Mark two, verse. We're just gonna read verses 13 through 17. 
Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to him. So he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus. I believe that Mark included that name because this was still at a time when everybody, most people were still alive. So if they're reading this, they're like, just so you know, the, the Levi I'm talking about, I know his name got changed to Matthew, but this is that Levi, the jerk nozzle tax collector that is stolen from all of us, just so you know. Sitting at the tax collector's booth, follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. I believe with all my heart that this is a town of 1,500 people, by the way. Everybody, anybody grow up in a town that small? Everybody know everybody in that town, especially if you are a government official. We knew who you were. And it says Jesus' fame had spread throughout this. It is not the first time, and I don't believe with any, that this is the first time that, like Jesus didn't go duck, 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 goose, and here goes Levi. You know what I'm saying? There, this was Levi seeing him and saying, I, there's something here different about him. I'm hearing these stories. I'm, I'm gonna follow him. So while having dinner at Levi's house, and Le, uh, the book of Luke records this, says that he invited, this was Levi's house, he invited him over for dinner. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? This was a charge that was going to follow Jesus for his entire ministry. They would use it as a pejorative against him. On verse 17, and this is, one, this is a statement that was so powerful that it actually landed in both Matthew, or three times, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all three record this statement. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that's a light and a lamp for our feet. We ask for that word to be alive in us today, that your promises would come alive in us. We just thank you that you cared enough to to write down what you did and said so we didn't have to guess. We know because of these gospels, including Mark. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so David Christopher just got back from Guatemala. Uh, a team of 34, okay, 34 women, and they all came back alive, 100%. We are so far 100% in getting people back alive from mission trips. Um, it was a great trip. Jesus did a lot of amazing things in people's lives. I mean, if you've ever traveled with David, you know that uh, he's got one of the spiritual gifts is of mercy, and he's so good at working together and getting the teams to work together. But he has a spiritual gift that not many know about, and that is the gift that I'm about to tell you about. When you go to Haiti, one of our countries, you get to the, the uh, you get through, you get your baggage, and you go through customs. There's always one or two guys or 10 standing there and they're giving you the international sign of I'm going to need you to pay me some money. Now, the problem with that is that like, you know, Amy, our bookkeeper's in here, like you don't get a receipt for a bribe. Like it doesn't really appear in any of our categories, like under gifts is I think how we book those. And there was a trip just not long ago with a bunch of doctors and medical professionals from Temple Church. I think that was the right trip. And, uh, and they had all these medical supplies and, and they get to the, uh, we're going to need your money now. And David, for whatever reason, that day had had it up to here with that. And finally, and it's true. I mean, every time we go there, they're like, oh, you got to, you know, it's, it's, you know, David, in, in Africa, it's like, it's, 
we don't know how much it is and it changes every time. And so at this point, he's like, you know what? Go, all of us, go. And he's telling the team, just go. Now, if you've seen the, the, the Locked Up Abroad show, you know that's a risky little stunt, right? Because David could have had a, a little uh, episode of him. But you know what happened? Nothing. They just walked out. And they, well, here's what this did happen. They get to the car, they're starting to put the bags in. And one of those little guys thought, I'm going to give this one more try and goes out and starts to get, try to get money. And David's like, no, go. We are not paying, like pointing at him like he's a child. (laughs) And you know what happened? Nothing. And you know why? Because it wasn't the law. He didn't break the law. You can go to jail in Haiti, right? You don't want to, but you can if you break the law, but he didn't break the law because those guys were doing what Matthew was doing. Matthew, it says a publican, a tax collector. He was on the coast on the Sea of Galilee when products were coming in the country. He was taking a little, the money he was supposed to take for Herod and anything else you want to put on the top, taking it. He, he made enough money that he could not only afford his own house, but a big enough house to invite all of his friends. Okay. That's Matthew, that's Levi. That's why the Pharisees are so angry when they, like, they didn't just say sinners, tax collectors got their whole category all to themselves. That's how much they hated them. That's the guys at the customs in Haiti. It's the guys at the border of Togo and Ghana. It's the, the they just, they're taking your money and I, I would have felt the same way the Pharisees felt. Like, are you kidding me? I, I'm working so hard as a Pharisee and you're gonna take that guy? That's the scandal of grace, that he would choose Levi. Now that said, Levi throws a party, okay? He invites all of his friends. And it's an invitation now. There's an invitation to come to Levi's house. So it's, who's gonna be there? Do you guys, if you're an introvert, you do this. The rest of you don't have to admit this. And actually, even if you're an introvert, you don't have to admit this. You know, when you get the invite online, I love the online RSVPs. You know why? Because I can see who else is gonna be at the party. Y'all are laughing because you do it. And you'll hold out just in case, well, maybe, maybe David the Loach will be there. And if the Loach is going to be there, there's going to be a party wherever David goes. I'll go. Right? But the Loach, he's marked interested, so I'm not sure. <laughs> Buford and Jane are going to be there. I'm in. They said no. Well, I'm not so sure. Point being, that's, he, is, he didn't have that benefit. They didn't know who was going to be there. So they, there's the, the invitation with, who's going to be at the party that Matthew throws? It's an invitation with, it's an invitation like for, that there's something going to happen at this party that we see in this passage. And then it's an invitation to do something after the party. So the invitation with, who's going to be there? And he gives this list of like publicans and sinners and you see disciples and there's Pharisees standing outside. There's all these different categories of people that are standing there, but not in Jesus' eyes. Because in Jesus' eyes, there's only two categories of people. Those who are forgiven and those whom he desires to forgive. Those who have been redeemed and restored and those who he desires to redeem and restore. Those are the only two categories of people there. Publicans and sinners, disciples, whatever. They, we look, and we'll, identi- we'll identity politic our way into the ground. We fit in this identity, this category. Jesus, the only two identities I've forgiven you, you're in my family, and boy, you've rejected me, but I desire to be you in my family. I want you to be in this. Now, the Bible, they use the word sinners. He actually says, I've come to, in which we would say the biblical maybe language would be sinners and saints, okay? 
the Bible says once you've been forgiven, once you're in that, that you are no longer, those old things are passed away, that even if you're struggling with it on the outward, that your inward identity is different. First Corinthians 16, you were, those were who you were, you're not that anymore. But the forgiven people, the saints and the sinners. Now, we don't like, I don't much care for the word sinner in our modern context because it doesn't it just rub you wrong just a little bit. I mean, growing up, it meant sinners was like, I mean, Watkins, it was like a Kevin Bacon movie where the, where the preacher was like, was that the Kevin Bacon movie? Am I remember right? Okay. You, if you are nodding, it's because you're old. But, I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize, Lindsay. I would go to your party, Lindsay, I promise. Um, I was, that's actually a true story. She's like a vitamin B12 shot wherever she goes. But that, you think that I think immediately like the, the preacher in the Kevin Bacon movie where Jesus was crucified and resurrected on the third day just as the scriptures foretold and I'm so mad about it that I'm gonna yell at you that you're a sinner. You're sinners in the hands of an angry God. I mean, it's just that, that feels like that. But let's go back so that we actually know what the Bible says about it so that we know who these people were, who we are. Because the idea of sin, I could say that it is a tra- like you've transgressed against the law I think it's 1 John 3. That, that's a, that's, it's true. That's a scripture that says that. That's what sin is. Uh, the word, the Hebrew, or the Greek word means missing the mark. We could say that. We, we could say that, uh, you know, look, God told Adam and Eve, don't eat the apple. You ate the apple or the fruit. That was a sin. We could say that. Jesus didn't stop there, though. Jesus said, hey, while I appreciate your enthusiasm with controlling your behavior, if you've even looked on a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Well, dadgum, now what do I do? He was saying that underneath of the sin, the activity outside of that is underneath this thing that is the sin of all sin. It's the root of all of it. It started not in the garden. It started in heaven with Lucifer. Now, there's a prophecy in Isaiah. I think it says 44 on here. It is actually Isaiah 14. And then Ezekiel 29. You can write them down and go there later for the sake of time. But what you will see was that in the Ezekiel account, speaking of Lucifer, he says, you were so beautiful. You were doing so well. You had everything. And you became proud in your heart and you corrupted your wisdom. He's speaking of pride as the main sin that caused Lucifer to rise up and say that, look, I'm, I can do this. I don't have to count on him. He's holding out on me. I've got this under control. Pride. And then in Isaiah, it says 44, but it is 14. He actually talks about that you said, I'm going to be on the throne. I'm going to be in the clouds. I'm going to be like you, God, equal with God. Now, when you see the words pride and equality, you think, oh, I saw that on a billboard once. I saw that on a parade. I saw that in a thing. And I want you to know that we can look. Now, when we identify and we start categorizing it, we can say, oh, that's that. But here's the thing. That's all of us. Pride and I want to be equal with God. A pride with it. And here's where it started. That's where it started with Satan. And then we got to the garden. And in Genesis 2, God told Adam and Eve, said, don't eat from the fruit of this tree. I'm giving you everything. I mean, it's like, Connor, I'm going to give you the whole thing. Just this one tree over here, don't touch that one. He says you'll surely die, but look, he didn't say why, by the way. He didn't say, well, it's not keto, right? (laughs) He didn't say it's going to give you high cholesterol. He didn't even say that it's going to like mess up the rest of humanity. He just said, don't do it or you'll die. He didn't say why. Now, 
if they knew why, I, I'm, look, I am that guy. I want to know why about everything. And when I want to know why I don't do this is so that I can control it because it's actually about me doing what, so that I can control my thing. Not about obeying because I love God so much, but if I know why, then it won't hurt me. So God says, hey, look for this one. Trust me. Uh, look, I've given you the whole thing, the whole garden, the whole production to, to subdue it. You were alone. I gave you Eve. She's smoking hot. Can you trust me? For this one, can you trust me? Out of love for me. And that is exactly where Satan attacked Adam and Eve. It was a character assassination. The serpent in the garden in chapter three said, did God really say that? He's holding out on you. He knows that you'll be like him if you eat this. He knows that. He's, you can't trust him. You can't give yourself fully to him. So you are on your own. And that lie is the lie at the heart of every human from the Garden of Eden until today. That I'm on my own that I can't trust God to save me. And we talk about save in the context of fire and brimstone. The word save, the word sozo means even in my life, the value, the, the purpose of being who I was created to be. I can't trust him for that. And so while it's easy to throw stones at something that seems so obvious to us, there are people all over this city who are working hard to achieve, to accomplish, because you can't trust that God can bring you the value of who you are, because you, I don't believe that really. So the only way I'm gonna get that value is if I achieve, and it means I'm bulldozing over people. It means I've cheated people. I've done whatever it took at all costs to win because I didn't trust in it. Pride equal with God, I'm gonna do this on my own, and the sin of it was actually me, I'm on my own. I can't trust you. And then there are those who you criticize other people, then you tear them down because when you do that, it actually makes you feel better and you're lifting yourself up. And that sin is that I can't, I, I'm so not valuable that the only way I, can, I can't trust that God, the only eyes in the universe that matter are looking at me and then say that I'm valuable, that I'm, he's come for me to seek and save me. So I'm going to belittle everyone else to lift me up. The sin is of course gossiping, but the sin is that I'm on my own that I have to rise up. And even an insecurity is just pride with a sad face. I, I'm insecure, so I'm gonna lift it up. And then the you control freaks, right? Uh, if I don't control this, nobody else will. If this isn't right, the whole thing falls apart. And I'm just saying, I can't trust God that in that situation, that in my life, that I'm trying to get my value from controlling everything, because it's gotta be right. And if it's not right, so, Pride and equality is me. I'm going to be equal with God. It's, this, it's the sin from the beginning of time. And it's God saying to these people at this party, they've finally given up. They're like, you know what? I've tried it every which way but loose, and it ain't worked. I'm coming to the table with this Jesus guy. Because you know who else didn't come to the party? Because again, this is easy. I've just thrown this all into the, you know, into the gossiping and the controlling and the, there's a word that I'm gonna to use today that you will probably never heard before, and you might not ever hear it again. <laughs> it's a Latin word, incurvitus in se. Anybody just out of curiosity? Seminary people, that's it. And they're, they're, right, okay, there right, we got one. We got a live one, Bryson. <laughs> it just means curved in on yourself. Martin Luther, so it was like Augustus of Hippo or Augustus of Giraffe or one of those, guys that he, but 
Martin Luther takes this on and says, this is the sin of mankind that at our very nature is whatever we're doing, we're curved in on ourselves. All about me, what I can get out of the racket. And we can look on TV and say, okay, you know what, that movie star, that Instagram personality, that politician, that egomaniac, that dictator, I can see that 100%. They're just everything about me, 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 me. But you know one of the best places to be curved in on yourself? Morals, religion, control. Because if I do that and I'm doing it all right, then I have control of it. But even that is about me getting what I wanted. It's these wonderful Muslim ladies who've lived their whole lives trying to get what they wanted, which was saved. The Quran doesn't even have the word love in it. They're not even trying to get the love of God. They're just trying to get saved. Earning it one step at a time of every inch, every piece of rice they gave away to try to earn it. Incurvate to say, even that becomes about them getting something for themselves. Which is why those Pharisees who were there that day they were invited to that party that you think Jesus would have kicked them out if they'd have slid up to the table? No way. But there's a reason why the Pharisees walked away and the publicans and the sinners. There's a, a quote that I'm going to murder, but you can Google it and find it later. C.S. Lewis said that a, a prostitute is in no danger of finding her current circumstances so compelling that whereas that the gospel would not be really good news for her because she knows that this is good news for me. It's the religious people that it's bad news. It's really, and look, we can blame the Pharisees, but we live in the South, y'all. And we'll earn our way right into God's grace and sit there with the Pharisees, and he's like, I'm over here with these guys. They was invited, we're all, and you know who was invited that day was everybody. And everybody, just to come to that table was like, look, I'm done. I'm letting go of the rope. I want to be part of whatever this Jesus guy is doing. And the religious people couldn't swallow it. Now, what were they inviting him for? It says that the doctor doesn't come for the healthy. He comes for the sick. That, that, that Jesus, I didn't come to save the righteous. I came for, the, for sinners. Now, if you're a Pharisee, you're like, um, excuse me. I've literally worked my whole life to be righteous so that when Messiah would come, that he would come for me. You can't be Messiah. There's no way. It made him angry if you came for that. And they started to accuse him that he can't be a prophet because he wouldn't be hanging out. There's no way he would hang out with these people if he knew that. But he did. He did hang out with those people. In Luke chapter 15, verse 1, 2, 3, 4, down into the chapter, these Pharisees came back to Jesus once again saying, the same thing. You're hanging out with publicans. You're hanging out with tax collectors, with sinners. Why is that? How do you do that? And Jesus in that passage responds by telling him three stories, three of them. He tells a story about a lost sheep. He tells a story about a lost coin. And he tells a story about a lost son. I came for that one. I, uh, in a former life, we had a little farm out on Peytonsville Arno Road and we, we were posers straight up, but, we've, we <laughs> but it didn't keep us from trying, right? So, but my favorite farm animal was, was Earl, who was my donkey. And I'm telling you, he was totally my bro. Like I would come home and he would like, mwah, mwah, to try to get me to come to see him. And best friends, we had goats and chickens, the whole thing. A duck. Sorry, Lauren. Um, until once a month or once every so often when the mayor across the street would go into heat and then Earl acted like he didn't even know who I was. 
he got out one night. We had to go over and get him from the neighbor's yard. I don't know. I guess we had to learn what the etiquette was when your donkey gets out. Like, what do you, like, and then the etiquette was, what if he impregnated her? Because we didn't know. Like, we have like that, we, that was a whole other thing. Fortunately, he did not. But he got to the mayor and he wouldn't come to me. He was kicking, kicking me. It's me, Earl. <laughs> I left the rest of the farm to go get Earl and bring him home. That's the story that Jesus is trying to say of this gold coin of something that's of value, so valuable, I'll tear this house out upside down to find this coin. You are that coin. I will, I will leave 99 righteous sheep to go find one unrighteous person. I will do whatever I, I will beg and please come home to the son that walked away. And it made the Pharisees angry because they're part of the 99. Like, why are you leaving us? It's not fair. In the Matthew telling of this vignette, in Matthew 6, he says to the Pharisees, before he says that the doctor came for the sick, before he says that, he says, you need to go read Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, and learn about that. Because the doctor comes for the sick. And what was that passage? It was that, that he's, this passage in Hosea. Oh, we don't have time to go there, do we? Sorry, I swear I know what time it is. Because I know there's Martin's Barbecue. He's saying to, in Hosea 6, is the prophet speaking to, to priests of Israel that you are a bunch of marauders. You're re robbing and you're stealing from the people. I don't desire sacrifice. I desire mercy. Go learn that, Pharisees. And you know why he would say that? Because Jesus knew something. He knew Psalm 14, verses 1, 2, and 3. There is none righteous, not one. Paul would say that in Romans 3, verses 10. He would quote from Psalms. But Jesus is saying that you're all mad because you think I'm leaving you and I'm telling you there are no 99. There is none righteous, not one. You don't know your place in the story. If you think that the lesson of this is don't eat dinner with sinners or if it is to eat dinner with sinners, those are conversations we should have. But that's not the point of this story. The point of this story is I came for you. Brett Carnally, I came for you. You are the coin of infinite value. You are the sheep that I would do anything to bring home. The son that I'm waiting for. You are that. He's inviting him for healing them to restore him. And where is he inviting him to? Follow me, he says Matthew to Levi. Follow me. Where's Levi going? He's going on a journey with Jesus. Where is he ultimately going? Where does the sheep go? Where does the coin go? Where does the sun go? We're going home. And on the way there, some awesome stuff is going to happen. Because tax collector, jerk nozzle, this guy's mean. You know who's going to, you know who keeps really good records? Tax collectors. Have you read the book of Matthew? The, the most extensive recollection of the Beatitudes is in Matthew. In Matthew 24, 25, 26, there's such detail that he's, he's a tax collector. Of course he's gonna do it right. You know my favorite part of this though? Is that he changed, somewhere he changes his name. We actually don't know for him. We know that Jesus would change Simon's name to Peter, James and John to Sons of Thunder. And all we know is this is Levi, but for after a while his name is Matthew, and we don't know why, we just know it is. And the only reason we know that is when Matthew writes this story, he says, It was me. 
That was me. And here's why that's amazing to me. I'll tell you why. <laughs> I'm going to tell you why right now. <laughs> because Matthew isn't Levi, son of Alphaeus, jerk nozzle, sinner anymore. Someday, he says, I'm going to give you a new name. You and me. And I'm so grateful. I've lived in this town long enough that there are people that when they hear my name, and some of y'all know this because you've been around long enough, they look at my name and they, that my name is associated with things that I don't want to be associated with. But I'm getting a new name. Someday I'm going to stay. It's going to be a name that he's going to give me. And that name, Darren, that's mud, that's what, it's gone. It's a new name. That's the journey. I'm going home. And I can go home, and so can you, because Jesus had a party at a table, starting in the book of Matthew, in the early stages there of his life, but he didn't have his first party at a table there. His first party at a table happened in a manger. Do you know what a manger is? It's a table for sheep. We think manger, we think it's the barn, right? That Jesus is away in a manger, whatever. The manger was the feeding trough for the sheep. He was laid in a manger at a table and he would one day be crucified and they would wrap him up and they would lay him in a tomb on a stone table. <laughs> and because of that, that he would allow himself, that he would lay himself on that table, I can now go to his table. We do the communion every week because he, at the last night of his life, again, Matthew records it, sat around a table and told his disciples that I'm actually not going to drink from this cup again until I come into my kingdom with you. But until that day, do this often in remembrance of me around this table. And then someday, we're all gonna be around this giant table we call the marriage feast of the lamb. All of us with our new names, all of us with bread and with wine that no longer represents forgiveness. It represents celebration and joy around the party. That's how much Jesus loves you. Now here's, in the few seconds we have, his invitation is for all of us. The most religious, the most irreligious, the most secular, the most spiritual. We are all humans in need of that forgiveness I was um, listening to a song by a guy named Russ Taft. Now, I'm in Nashville, so I ought to make sure nobody works with Russ in here. You never know. It's a song called Table in the Wilderness that he performed back in the day. And I was listening to this, and it was like, oh, this is, this is what Jesus was saying to us. It's this passage in Psalm 78 where he, uh, with the people of Israel, like, you can't even put a table for us in the wilderness? And God's like, you know what? I'm gonna make it rain sandwiches, okay? I'll show you. I can do that. But there was a table in the wilderness of this earth that he has set for us. In the lyrics to the song, that there's a table in the wilderness where the blind can see and the poor possess. Where the weak are strong and the first ones last, there's a table in the wilderness 
where the blessed sing of his tenderness, where the lame can walk and the weary rest at a table in the wilderness. But when you search, some of you, this is your story, search so hard for the promised land, but the earth won't yield to your blistered hands. You hang your head and you wipe your brow and you shout it out that there's a table in the wilderness where the blind can see and the poor possess, where the weak are strong and the first ones last. There's a table in the wilderness. When you close your eyes, kneeling by your bed, and this is some of your story, all the working hours spinning through your head, you remember the place that your heart desires where you found your life. You'll find life at a table in the wilderness. He prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies. You can take another trip around the sun. I'll tell you what a therapist told me once a long time ago. A counselor was like, Darren, you can do that again for another year, but you're coming back here at some point. Why not today? (laughs) You can take a ride on the crazy train, but he'll meet you at the station. Some of you are going to take another drive around this and you're going to come back to your blistered hands to all the working hours spinning through your head of all that stuff I'm trying to do to save me. And all he's saying is, I created you for more than that. Can you trust me? Can you trust me to get your value from that, your sozo, your salvation, your abundant life? It'll never come from the relationship. It'll never come from your sexuality. It'll never come from your identity. It'll only come from Jesus. And he's inviting you to the table in the wilderness so that every single one of us will one day sit around the table for all of us and everyone's welcome. Stand to your feet and let's pray. Heavenly Father, You have invited us to supper with you, (laughs) our Savior. It's a supper that you have prepared for us, even in the presence of our enemies. We thank you for your goodness, your kindness, that I'm the lost coin, I'm the lost sheep, I'm the lost son. Each of us are that. Mm, I just take it for granted. I'm so thankful even for my Muslim friends that remind me this is scandalous that God would become a man, that you would become one of us and you would invite us to follow you, invite us to your table. Jesus, thank you for that. You come to our table that we might go to yours. I pray for my brothers and sisters right now, someone who might even be thinking, I don't know, I want, I'm just done. Lord, that you would just, they'd let go of the rope, become one of the forgiven, become one of the redeemed and let go of trying to make it on our own. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.